Hi, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast of the event, Jocks Wrong in Conversation with Mirandi Rewo, recorded live at Lennox Head Cultural Centre as part of the Byron Writers Festival's Out of Season program. Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming here tonight. Thank you for coming, Jock. Hey, Randy. Okay. Many years ago when I had my first book out, I, I don't know if I've told you this, Jock, my very first book out, my first festival panel was with the Byron Writers Festival, which was a pretty big coup, and it was um, on a panel with Jock and Michael Robotham. So nice. I was terrified, <laughs> terrified, and of I was sitting up the there. Pardon? <laughs> of us or the audience? <laughs> everything, everything. I was so terrified, and I remember, and everybody tells you how lovely Jock and Michael are. And Jock leant over and I thought... He's going to say something, you know, comforting, you know, because I was so nervous. And he leant over and he goes, Randy, you've got a bit of cake in your hair. <laughs> <laughs> it was banana. But anyway, thank you for that, job. Good to be there. Um, okay, so we're going here tonight to talk about The Burning Island. I'm not sure how many of you have read this book. It's a beautiful book. It is set about 30 years after the events in his novel Preservation. Mm. We are introduced to Eliza Grayling, the daughter of Lieutenant Joshua Grayling from the first novel. Joshua has lost his sight in the meantime. He's pretty ill. And when Srinivas, also from the first novel, turns up to ask for his assistance in investigating another shipwreck, Eliza has to join her father on the voyage. So what uh, first drew you to telling this story, Jock, um, you know, this continuation of preservation? Yeah, um, thanks, Mirandy. I suppose to, to go all the way back to the start of where these books came from, um, all of the images that you're looking at behind us here are of the Furneaux Islands and mostly of Flinders Island, which is the big one amongst the group. Um, I've been going there for most of my adult life and, and my family um, have been going there and um, it's full. It's a beautiful place physically, as you can see, but um, the islands are full of all these really interesting historical stories and um, indeed some very, very grim history relating to Aboriginal Australia. And I guess ever since I've been going there, and long before I, I called myself a writer, I had been thinking about these stories and the fact that they're kind of folk history. People discuss them orally among each other in the islands, but there's not a lot written about the history at all. And I thought that was such a fascinating thing. And, and as I started to think of it, initially I was thinking of one novel in three parts, and there's a period of 50 years between 1797, which is when the Sydney Cove was wrecked in these islands, and 1847, which is the end of the Aboriginal settlement on Flinders Island, that 50-year period was, was extremely influential in all sorts of other Australian history. It was the birth of sealing, uh, the discovery of coal, um, the, the navigation of Bass Strait itself, making Sydney more accessible. All of these things came out of this little 50-year burst. And after that, the islands kind of went back to sleep. Um, and I find that idea so compelling. So I started out with the notion of a novel in three parts, and then um, it became clear very quickly that the stories were too big to do that. Mm, so mm. Um, I, I've opted for this method of, of having three subsequent novels. Right. Mm. So you're working on the third I am. Now. I am. Okay, um, well, we'll talk about that later. The third's written and oh. now I'm in that terrible... The phase that you know oh. of, of just turning it over Excellent. and over and over and examining it from every possible angle. Oh, that's great. Okay, we'll get back to that later. Yeah. Um, also, guys, if you see anything up here that you'd like to ask Jock about, um, save it for the end because we will have um, questions at the end. Okay? Um, Tell us why why back to Joshua Grayling out of the characters, um, yeah. Yeah, okay. I, I suppose I wanted to look at him from a different angle. So if you've read Preservation, um, Joshua Grayling is playing a sort of a conventional detective role. Mm. Um, he's trying to figure out why these people might be lying to him about what happened on the Sydney Cove walk. And this time around, um, I needed some history to elapse in between, this gap of 30 years. Mm. And I wanted to look at Joshua from a completely different perspective, which was as a broken man. Um, and, and that meant also that I could bring his daughter into the foreground. 
mm. um, as, as the more active protagonist. And, and I was really, you know, early on in thinking about the novel, I was really fascinated by the idea of Eliza, mm. that there was the prospect of her being a lot like her mother. Mm. Um, there was... In telling any of these stories, you run the risk of them being extremely male stories because mm. there's boats involved. Boats in those days are always full of blokes. Kind um, of frontier yeah, territory. And that can get a bit yeah. monotonous, frankly, right. for everybody. Right. So I really wanted to make sure that I had Eliza up front mm. and that relationship with her father. I'm a father of daughters, which is a thing you can't say anymore without sounding like Scott Morrison. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's very unfortunate. But I am, in fact, a father of daughters. And... Um, I, I guess I was doing a lot of thinking about those relationships and it was a way of exploring things that I thought. Right. That's interesting because mm. my next question is, so we're drawn into Eliza Grayling's character immediately. Um, she's tough, self-sufficient, observant and um, hasn't had the easiest upbringing. Mm. Is that what yeah. you would say about your daughter? <laughs> <laughs> is this what she tapped into? There were no fires. <laughs> <laughs> um, why did she... So why, why did you choose her in the end? Because... Uh, so she could look at her father and sort yes. of explore. Yeah, and it, it, there's that interdependence whereby um, she's still his child and, and mm. there's still affection between them, but yes. there's this enormous frustration. And yeah. I guess the hanging question that has, has looking after her father cost her her entire youth yes. and her prospects of yes. matrimony and things that mattered a great deal at that time in history, mm. um, she's sacrificed all of that to look after this bloke who ultimately is really self-destructive. Yeah. A, a lot of his grief and his rage and his poisoning himself with alcohol, mm. they're things he's brought on himself. Mm. And, and so she's weighing up, you know, why have I given so much of myself to this busted-up yeah. old fella when, yeah. when, you know, she's got a life to live? And like you said, and you wanted those fresh eyes yeah. to sort of look at the, the time, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, I think maybe you've mentioned before too in writing it, you know, because now there is a lot of talk about, you know, who gets to write what. Did you run much by your wife? I think we. Well, I always we do. We. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is there anything in there? Like, I always do, and, and particularly, uh, yeah, I, I guess um, lots of aspects of the female eyes. Mm. I'm guessing. Oh, and, yeah, 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 yeah. I think yeah. that must be what I was reading about, especially, yeah. Yes, yeah. So, <laughs> I, I, I do. There are conversations. Uh, there are... <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, it's it's very well done. It's great, yeah. Especially, like, her her, attract and, her attractions Thank to you. others and everything, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and oddly, um, the captain of this vessel, Captain Argyle, who, um, if you're aware of what goes on in this book, he's a cross-dresser. And um, it meant that I had to do a lot of thinking about dresses and um, not an area on which I'm any kind of authority. Yeah. And, and it seemed that at one stage I had him in a dress that hadn't been invented until 1960. Yeah, but we, we, did, we did discuss that, that I think I came across in my yes. research. But it was a different thing, a slip. Was it a slip? Was the word a slip? A shift. A shift, a shift, that's right. Yes. And it was a form of undergarment. Right. Just not like the 1960s one, but a yeah, form of it. But not something you'd so, rock on so deck. It wasn't, it wasn't wrong. <laughs> it wasn't wrong at all. <laughs> Thank you. I do want to ask you about him later. Mm. Um, do you want to tell us more about the Ferno Islands and what is this burning island? So it's called the Burning Island. What is yeah. it? Yeah, okay. So the Ferno group, the easiest way to think about the geography here is if you think of Tasmania as a triangle, and Tasmania is more or less in quotation marks. And the one on the left, on the west side of Bass Strait, is King Island, which basically sits by itself. On the east or right-hand side, there's this group called the Ferno Group. And geologically, they are the continuation of, um, if you think of that beautiful silver granite at Wilson's Promontory and places like that, and it then runs all the way down through this island group and into the eastern side of Tasmania, where it forms places like the Bay of Fires. Mm. Um, beautiful, glittering silver granite, and it makes these really, really remarkably white beaches, and that means that the water has this, you can probably see, has this gorgeous blue to it. Um, so, so these are the islands we're seeing in the photos behind yes, us? Yeah. Okay, okay. So um, the, the Ferno Islands more or less block the eastern side of Bass Strait, and where they're so important historically is because ships used to come 
along, almost along the Antarctic Circle from the west, underneath Australia, and then they'd turn north and go up to Sydney because nobody had any idea that Tasmania was separated from the mainland. Once the Furneaux Islands were found and mapped, it became clear that there was indeed a strait and that there were gaps through, which, which enabled people to go north of Tassie. So the really important position, the island that I've called the Burning Island is an island that was known as um, Gun Carriage Island, and right. no one really knows why. Uh -huh. um, and then it was renamed Vanzatart Island. And these days, Vanzatart is... Um, it, it, it did burn in the 1800s, although the fire that, that I've written about is... You know, it's one from somewhere inside my head. But um, it had burned. Um, it did have wildlife on it, and it's been restocked with wildlife. It's now owned by Russian hunters. Right. And they fly over every and year with these what rifles. What sort of wildlife have they restocked with? <sighs> well, there's, there's definitely... Stuff to hunt. Stuff to hunt, oh. yeah. There's pigs on the mainland, but on, on Vanzatart, I think it might be game birds. Right. I'm not sure. I'm not a shooter. That's interesting. <laughs> what about, I've got here the Hammock Island, which is Prime Seal. That's Prime Have Seal. Have you been there and it's yes. as you described it, or how much has it changed? Yeah, it is. And indeed, um, it's very important because if you think about... Um, the movement of Aboriginal people into Tasmania, so that Tasmanian Aboriginal people are known as the Palawa, mm. and the Palawa did not sail to Tasmania, they walked, because oh, okay. um, as ice ages came and go, Bass Strait appeared and disappeared, and when it wasn't there, it was a grassy plain called the Bassian Plain, and Aboriginal people had walked across the Bassian Plain to reach Tasmania, um, and, of course, these islands would have been mountaintops, and therefore there's not a lot of evidence of occupation or material culture on these islands. But there are a couple of spots. And on um, Prime Seal Island, which used to be called Hummock Island, there's a cave called Manalagena Cave, which is, I think, 18,000 years old, wow. which is the cave that I've described in the novel. Right, OK. Um, yeah, that's why it's there. That's amazing. Mm. I do have a question. Last time I didn't get to it because we ran out of time, so I'm going to ask you quickly oh, now. Um, on page 174, apparently, mm -hmm. they looked down on the wreckage of the Sydney Cove can you actually do that? Oh, it's a good question. Um, it's still there. So it was found in 1977, and at this stage it was essentially just um, the ribs of the hull. Everything mm -hmm. else is pretty much gone. And um, they had spread flat on the bottom. It, it's quite shallow. It's sort of 18, 19 feet deep, and it's a seagrass meadow on sand. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a good environment for this to happen. And the seagrass and the sand gradually piled up over it, and um, so it was quite a remarkable thing that they found it at all. Right, yeah. Um, they then did a series of archaeological surveys of the wreck and then reburied it deliberately. So it's still there. Um, but what I didn't know was if the Sydney Cove had wrecked in 1797 and if these people are passing over it in, I think I've said, 1830, so what would have been the extent of the deterioration in 33 years? Um, so I rang up the archaeologist who headed up the, the mm, marine surveys. Wow. And, and we sort of had this great conversation where I was saying to him, so if you were looking at it 30-odd years after mm. it wrecked, you know, mm. how much of it would have been visible? And, and he had all these theories about, you know, which bits fall off first and why and, and where they would have fallen and what you would have seen if you had. As I've described, if you had a, a viewing box, which is like, a, I guess, often a wide cylinder with a window in the bottom, mm. and you push it into the water and look down through it and you can see things. Um, yeah, what there would have been left to see. It's yeah. a bit hard to know. Right. That's interesting. Mm. But it is still there. So yes. they yeah. could have seen it. Yeah. That's great. Um, oh, okay. This is, this is a beautiful part. I'm going to read this part because it's only short. We, we will have a reading from Jock later. <laughs> but this is Eliza. This is from Eliza's point of view. And she's looking at the moon bird. She was short, stout, and sleepy-looking, and yet the very moment I saw her, I felt a deep affection I cannot explain. She was the tired hound that wants to sleep on your feet, idle yet watchful, able to tell the shadows of easy repose from those that should be barked at. She looked nothing like her neighbours. She was carvel-built in heavy, dark timbers, two short, thick masts, strange diagonal rigging, the hull was heavy, reassuringly so, rounding through a fat waist to a stern that was almost a teacup. The main mast passed through a low cabin, while at the stern there was a mo modest quarter deck. So that's the moonbird, the boat that they're on, and that's written so lovingly. <laughs> Jock, did you see this boat, or have you been on this actual boat? 
No, it's a composite of a few things. Um, I did a lot of looking at pictures of boats. <laughs> and I'm not, right. I'm not particularly well-versed about boats, but I had a rough idea of what I was after. I wanted the boat to be this kind of comforting presence because mm -hmm. a lot of weird, disorientating things are happening to Eliza and her yep. father. Yep. And I wanted the boat to be... You know how in, in a lot of fiction about seafaring, the boat is tricksy and unreliable and things start malfunctioning with it. Mm. I didn't want that kind of dramatic arc. Right, I wanted this yep. boat to be steadfast. A safe haven yeah. for them. Um, so I thought a lot of, I looked at a lot of pictures of boats. I kind of narrowed it down in the end to Danish schooners because they do have this kind of sturdy, um, serious look about them. <laughs> and then there's an Australian writer who is absolutely fascinating called Patsy Adam Smith who wrote, I think... I'm guessing, but maybe through the 50s, 60s and 70s. And um, she was a journalist. She was really pioneering in the things that she did, which was that she went out into remote, difficult, um, primarily male working environments mm. and wrote journalism about the things she saw. So mm. she wrote about um, desert railways and she wrote a lot about the supply boats that moved between these islands. And um, she talked a lot about the boat that she was on in the islands. And I forget the name of it, but that the mast passed through the cabin. And in fact, right. it passed through the, the foot of the mast passed through the galley table where mm. you ate your meals. Mm. Mm. And wow. that the um, the men on the ship had um, threaded wishbones from chickens around oh. the um, around the foot of the mast. And wow. so that that little image had stuck with me, which is why I mentioned that in that little passage. <laughs> Um, but it was it was a fun process, kind of trying to come up with the boat that would be a character, mm, mm, um, mm, particularly as beautiful. I say when you're not all that well informed. Yeah, well, it's lovingly written. Um, in the Burning Islands, you write about the Australian women in the area of that time, women who were termed island wives to the sealers and other European settlers. And in your chat with Michael Vitch, you spoke of the different views or histories of what happened to these women. In your notes, you mention George Augustus Robinson, so I'd like, I was wondering if you could tell us about him. But in the novel, there's an interesting conversation between Eliza and Peacock, an Aboriginal woman whose real name is Goni Nanana, and they're talking about Taranorara, yep. a well-known Aboriginal woman of the times. Um, and eventually she says to Eliza, you don't understand it because you want a simple answer. Um, can you tell us about that? Job? Yeah, that, that yeah. line is very important because that was the conclusion I came to. Mm. That I did a mm. lot of reading about the Tyree Law, which is the Island Wives, and I could never come to a concluded view about um, why they were there, what their agency was in their situation. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, and indeed, I spoke to two separate people, most importantly, um, an Aboriginal politician who was firmly of the view that these women were abducted and sent into sexual servitude and, and forced labour in these islands. Mm. And a female academic who's in fact a descendant of the Tyree law who said, no, no, a lot of women chose this as an alternative to genocide on Tasmania. Right. Um, and the truth may well be somewhere between the two yeah. positions. But um, I felt that it was really important to have Peacock use that line that um, you want a simple answer and there isn't one. Because I, I think that's mm. that's where I landed about mm, the issue. Mm, mm. Um, there's there's two ways in which this all goes out into other history that expands outwards. But um, there's two ways in which you can consider the future of the Tasmanian Aborigines to have survived the genocide. Mm. One is through Robinson's settlement, which was mm. called Waibalina, and I think in the end of, at the end of Waibalina, something like forty people were moved back to. Tasmania to a place called Oyster Cove mm. and the last of those was Truganini who we all mm. know of. Mm. So for a long time Truganini was referred to as the last of the Tasmanians but she probably, in fact she certainly wasn't. Um, mm. There were women who had families with the sealers and those bloodlines continued through those families and, and one of the, the really I think remarkable historical echoes in the islands is that you go to the supermarket and you can be in the dairy section next to somebody who is carrying the surname of the sealers. Right. You know, those surnames are still really strong in the island yep. group and the history is only just under the surface all the time. Yeah. It's interesting what we were talking about at the beginning. You were talking about um, folklore, a lot of it's folklore, but I think what's interesting in historical fiction or this sort of historical fiction is that retelling of that folklore, mm. like from another angle, I guess, 
you know, on a newer angle, like actually looking yep. at it for what it is. I guess, you know, like what you were saying about those Aboriginal wives, I'm looking at the moment at um, Indonesian women who, I guess, paired up, they were mistresses or sort of part wives to Dutch men. And it's the same thing, like where was the agency? Like how far yep. do you look? And then you look at these, you know, there are the folklores of how things were, but how you can retell it maybe to how it usually, or how it really was maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And... and the example of that for me in, in, in writing this novel was that it's based around um, an actual shipwreck called the Britomart, which mm. happened nine years later. So I've sort of mm. taken the Britomart, renamed it and moved it nine years back. Um, and the Britomart, there, there was this great scandal at the time because there were rumours about the Britomart that it, it simply vanished sailing from, I forget which way, but either from Sydney to Hobart or the reverse. Mm. It vanished somewhere in the islands. And... Um, the Sydney media, who were sort of brand new at the time, mm. cooked up this rumour that it had been lured in by false lights by the sealers right. and that they'd murdered everybody. And then there was a subsequent rumour that it was carrying bullion. Yeah. So that was a thing that I worked into the yeah. novel. The idea was that um, there was... So it must have been a north-to-south voyage because the rumour was that there was a bank that was going to be founded in Launceston mm. and that they were bringing bullion down to mm. found the bank and that, that, that the sealers got onto this, they lured them in, wrecked it and murdered everybody and mm. took things. There definitely was some weird stuff going on because um, the passage that I've related about James Munro on Preservation Island, he actually did have all these things from the shipwreck. He had the captain's chest, it mm. had documents in it. There was a big piece of the cabin that mm. was being used mm. as a pigsty on Preservation Island. So something odd had happened. But Could it have just sort of come yes. in on the tide too? Absolutely, like in, yes. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I had sort of come to that conclusion mm. that, look, it was probably some kind of misadventure, mm. um, but not something as sinister as that. And I was pretty happy with that version and, and it, it seemed to accord with all the documents. Mm. At the end of that summer, when I left Flinders Island, I was at the airport and there's an old man in the terminal and we were all sort of kicking around waiting for our plane. And this man's about 92 and he was introduced by a friend and she said, this is my grandpa. Um, he knows what happened to the Britomart. Mm. And, and so this old bloke came up and he really... You know when somebody really wants to give you that story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And this is the whole folkloric thing, you know? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. he said, um, OK, so he's 92. Uh, his grandfather was told the story by somebody who was there. Mm. That, so that's how immediate the history mm. is. You know, mm. here's this living link to this thing. And he said they weren't lured in, but they did wreck the ship on the rocks and they were all murdered. And he said, I know where they're all buried and they're still there. Oh. And then the plane arrived and we all got on the plane. And I, I'm just sitting there in this plane going, holy shit. So they weren't lured in but they were murdered. And... Yes, right. he that's says. That's interesting. Um, and again, you know, that's, that's the enormous gulf between oral history in mm. the islands and what you might find in the archive. Mm. And, and who knows It's who's also right. amazing how brutal things were. Or, yes. or, you know, like, I mean, we're pretty sheltered in Australia anyway. Brutal things are still happening but around the world, you know, but it is also um, astounding when you when you read back on, like, how brutal things were yeah. or life was. And I, I thought about this or reading... how cheap life was. Reading you know? your book, I, I had the same thought, that in, in Preservation and Burning Island, I've struggled with the notion that people living through these brutal times, mm. how much of a capacity did they have to appreciate beauty? Mm. Um, you know, the walkers who survived the, the Sydney Cove wreck, they're walking through southern New South Wales mm. and, and they're beautiful, beautiful mm. forests. You know, were they seeing any of that stuff? Yeah, but were after like 500 hours of <laughs> no yeah. food or, or drink. Get me out of here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, Maybe that first half hour. <laughs> and I, I got the same sense with Stone Sky Gold Mountain that, <laughs> yeah. that you have to somehow, you need to communicate to the reader that mm. these are beautiful places. Mm. But equally, the people going through this are not having that thought. No, no, they're not. Um, Another part that really struck um, me was when you wrote about Louisa on preservation. And this part of the book is so finely drawn about the women, the house, what they cooked, what they did and talked about. How did you choose how you'd write these particulars? Was it something you read or came across? Like, because there's such particulars in it. It's yeah. really beautiful. There's a, thank you. There's a wonderful book called Grease and Ochre, which is um, written by Patsy Cameron, who's the woman I referred to earlier, who's mm -hmm. a, a descendant of these women. Mm -hmm. And um, 
she explains, I, I kind of had the idea at the start that there were sealers in these islands in the early 1800s and they were all wild men and outlaws and escaped convicts and the, the whole thing was anarchy. Mm. And she, in fact, explains it in much better detail, which was that there were two waves. Initially, there was a wave of those blokes mm. and it was complete Wild West stuff. And they slaughtered everything in sight mm. to the extent that they um, drove... There, there are five endemic species of seal in Bass Strait and they drove two of them to local extinction. And, and the rest of them, they, they drove down to such a level mm. that they were no longer mm. commercially viable. So it all went quiet after about 19, 1810, 1812... Then there was this second wave mm. who were really old men and, mm. and they, they were kind of recluses and they were people who just wanted to be away from society and mm. they lived independently but none of them, well, with some exceptions, most of them were not physically able to do all this stuff themselves. Mm. So one of the reasons why they had Tyreel or they had Indigenous wives was these women were doing the swimming, they were handling the boats, mm. they were flensing the seals. Mm. Um, they were doing a lot of really hard physical labour because these old blokes couldn't do right, it. Right, yeah. Um, so, yeah, her depiction of the domestic life of these women mm. like Louisa was really helpful to me. Yeah. Um, and, and I think there's, there's every reason to think that these houses were run with pride. They, oh, they absolutely. Were, you know, yeah. it really rang true. Yeah, no, mm. it was beautiful. Um, so, oh, let's talk about Gideon. Yes. The Doctor, he's great. <laughs> Very interesting, elusive kind of character, I thought. Tell us about him. Well, So um, interesting. Again, what the reading revealed was that I had this idea that the naturalists who moved mm. through the New World in those years were men of science and they were, you know, Enlightenment mm. men. Um, it turns out a lot of them were just in it for the celebrity. Yeah, I love how you, you came to this conclusion. Yeah, that, that they... And um, I, I understand, not very well, that Joseph Banks was such a man, that right. he had this enormous inheritance. He was one of the wealthiest men in England. And he came to Australia with Cook very early in his life, mm. did this important work, came back, was an enormous celebrity because of it, and then really didn't do much more of it at all. <laughs> it's not like he had tenure in a university. And it's like getting that first book that sells a million and exactly. then just resting yeah. on your laurels. And then retired We're still the waiting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so I wanted Gideon to have a, a sense of that kind of dilettante. That, right. You know, he's got the gear and, and he talks a good game, um, but that ultimately he was out for adventure. Yeah, um, yeah, I love it. But equally, uh, I suppose this contradicts what I've just said, but I was also interested in the notion that science involves being cruel to the very creatures yep. which you are purporting to exalt. Yeah. So he suffocates a bird in a glass jar. Yeah. Um, he eviscerates a fish. Yeah. Um, he does all these gross things to these critters because he, his rationale, rationale is he's trying to understand them. Yeah, but that is a lot. That's how science works. Yeah, you know, that objective <laughs> kind of or, you know. Yeah, yeah it's detachment. Yeah. yeah. So he's writing a book on oh, he's writing a book on eating fish and seaweeds, and I was just curious if you came across similar types of studies in that time. Yes. Now this, yes, um, I'm trying to think how to explain this without landing a big spoiler on everybody. Oh. But um, there was a guy called Dr. Generate. So I, I kind of love that for a start. Like he okay. was degenerate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, who came to Australia? He was a, he was a doctor. He, he was he was under a cloud. He was a bit discredited, this fella, and he came to Australia and he practiced medicine. But he really, really wanted to practice dentistry, and there were no dentists in the colony yet. And he wrote the first medical textbook in Australian history, which was called something really banal, like a guide to healthy teeth. Yeah. Um, but they wouldn't register him as a dentist in the colony. And he then entered this litigation that went on pretty much for the rest of his life. Huh. He was suing everybody in sight, trying to get registered as a dentist in Sydney. Um, so it was just that little grain of, right. of, of him publishing yeah. the first medical textbook right. in Australia right. that I, I, I was going to use generate more literally than I did. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And then um, I had the experience we all dread of discovering that there is a descendants group. <laughs> and, and they're pretty active. <laughs> so, if there are any generates in the room, hello. And um, yeah, oh, thanks for that being is here. Unfortunate. No, I thought that was really interesting. And let's go back to Argyle, the master of the ship. 
So it seems we've both written about cross-dressers. I was fascinated with how he chose to dress. Do you want to tell us more about why or... I mean, it is explained in the story, but it's... Yes. It's done really well in that it's how it should be. It was just sort of accepted. Yeah, I I guess um, the easiest way to look at this is how it happened as a writing process. And that was that I knew... I had a group of people on a boat, and the thing about a boat in fiction is that it's essentially a stage. Right. Um, It's a stage in theatre because um, these people can't leave, and there's a certain number of them, and you need to be constantly thinking about their positions on the stage and and how they're interrelating. So I knew I had a boat, I knew I had this number of people, and I knew the boat had to have a captain. And when I started to write the captain, I found that I just kept hitting cliches that my captain was very, ah, <laughs> a salty old yeah, dog, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, And I just didn't want that to happen. So yeah. I guess the mental process was, what can I do with this guy that's going to flip him on his head? Yes. Um, and the answer was, he comes out in a dress. Yes. And really, I had only got that far creatively. But it's not ridiculous. Like, it's really lovely. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And, and indeed, yeah. I worked backwards a lot also and, and yeah. refined those appearances yeah, yeah, of yeah. his. Um, and so as I was writing, I was thinking sort of in real time about why is he doing this? And I really didn't know for a long time. And it was only quite late in the writing of the book that I thought, this is grief. And, and where that really interested me was because I think um, we, we tend to present cross-dressing as fetishistic, as, as something that's Mm. sex and gender mm, related mm, mm. and here it's nothing of the sort it's this man who's lost his wife who's mm. trying desperately to keep some mm. trace of her in mm. his in his sensory life I suppose mm, mm. Um, and that really only occurred to me quite late in the piece. Oh, okay that's really interesting. Um, lastly let's talk about Srinivas who I personally found very interesting he's Alaska um, I think Bengali, Hindu, they call yeah. him Hindu, yes, but Bengali, Bengali right. revisits yep. us in this novel. For my novels, I researched, especially for my first one, the crime ones, I researched um, the Asian population of London and a lot of them, you come across the term Laska a lot. Do you want to tell us what Alaska is? Yeah, so Laskas were um, indentured labour on British commercial shipping. Um, principally British, I think, and um, particularly in the Indian Ocean, and they were used for probably 400 years. Um, At this particular point in history, they were typically paid one-ninth of what a British sailor was. They were fed the scraps, they were treated appallingly, um, they were very expendable, but they were absolutely indispensable to the overall commercial effort of shipping. Mm. Um, so what, what's fascinating about the Laskars is that they come from all sorts of Asian nationalities, um, all sorts of religions, and um, they, over the centuries, they came to form a subculture of their own mm. um, with their own ranks, their own um, patois, um, mm. lots and lots of traditions. And um, so they're a really fascinating culture in their own right and, and something that I think often gets overlooked in talking about British Absolutely. Shipping. And that's what, something I really like now is sometimes in BBC historical shows you'll see, you know, like Alaska or a Chinese person, just, you know, um, African, just sort of in the background. Not not like Bridgerton mm. <laughs> necessarily, but, you know, just I think if in those dock areas you would have seen other coloured people. Yes. Um, people of colour. Um, there's this part that I found really resonated with me. Um, so Eliza's having a chat with Srinivas. They made a success of it, he said. Old differences persisted. The Indians were never invited into the drinking, the shooting parties, but a basic level of respect was shown. It raises a question, he suggested. If each of us, and by us I understand him to include me, came from the old world, from Dublin and Birmingham and Leith and Massachusetts, from Calcutta perhaps, then how much of that is left behind and how much becomes this place? Mm. There were, um, so to go back to preservation for a moment, there were 17 men who tried to walk from uh, basically Wilson's Prom to Sydney around the coast. And of the 17, uh, I think 13 were Lascars um, and only one Lascar got there and Mm. two white men got there. Mm. And so however many of them have disappeared into the bush and, and they're on the one hand, you could say they've died of exposure or they've, they've died in violent clashes with Indigenous people. Mm. Nobody knows. But there is mm. also the tantalising 
prospect that they survived and prospered mm, there. Mm. Um, and so I think, yeah, lots of these places, like the, the, the forests of southern New South Wales, Sydney itself, yeah. are composed of all of these unknown backstories. That's right. So um, Sienna, Sienna Brown wrote a book called Master of My Fate, I think it's... And she she's moved here, like she's Caribbean kind of background, and she uh, found out that Caribbean slaves were part of... Um, you know, part of uh, building, like, the rocks in the middle of Sydney, you know, right. like back in the, you know, back in the early 1800s. And you would just never picture that, except now she's written a novel about it because they were there and we don't, you know, it's the same old thing, you know, what tales we, or folklore we believe or have yes. hand, handed down that we can actually rewrite or retell. Yeah, and, and I think there's, there's a great um, exchange going on at the moment in Australia whereby there's, there's a group of historians who are looking at the unheard voices. Mm. Um, Grace Carskins, Tom Griffiths, Mark McKenna, um, lots of these people are writing history that, that they're stories that we essentially know. Mm. You know, for instance, the story of the formation of Sydney or the story of the wreck of the Sydney Cove. Mm. But these people are getting in and under and finding the, the minor voices that mm. were previously not discussed. Yeah. And then that's feeding into fiction and, and mm. that's you and I. And, mm. and I think Trying that... Trying to imagine... Yeah, so that it, it's not as though we are unearthing new history, but we're finding new ways to talk about the same history. Mm. Um, and I, I think that's a really interesting thing that's started yeah. happening. Which kind of feeds into my next question. One of the things I think is important or, or of interest in historical fiction is how they're set in the past, but actually they're examining something in the present, like something that's still an issue. In what way do you consider your novel speaks to issues or themes that are of concern still now, like, or yeah. of interest? Well, if, if we think about the Palawa people, about the Tasmanian Aborigines, um, when I was at university, which um, <laughs> is a long time ago, um, that was the point at which historically we started talking about Tasmanian Aborigines in the present tense. Mm. Like, it's that recent. Mm. Um, and Tasmanian people have, have had to push and push and push to mm. have this recognition. Um, there was a documentary released in 1990 called Black Man's Houses, mm -hmm. which is all about um, the Tasmanians and the idea of their extinction and Wybalina. So just to, to sort of give you a synopsis of Wybalina, George Augustus Robinson was um, a bricklayer and a missionary. He went to the governor of Tasmania in 1828, I think, and said, if there's not an intervention of some kind very, very shortly, the settlers are going to murder everybody. And he said, I'm willing to go out into the bush and find whoever's left and make a treaty with them and get them to come in and I'll take them somewhere safe and turn them into Christians. So the last bit of that pro proposition is obviously quite problematic. Um, but this is what he tried to do. And he took some hundreds of Palawa people out of, admittedly out of the jaws of slaughter, mm. he took them to Flinders Island, built a little settlement and tried to teach them the Bible and tried to teach them to wear European clothes and the whole thing was a terrible disaster. Mm. Um, this, this documentary, Black Man's Houses, is about that settlement and, and why it went mm. wrong. And the, the interesting point that it makes is that as late as the filming of, of this documentary, there's a group of Tasmanian descendants trying to peg little um, monuments into the ground where all of these poor people are buried. And they came back after a week and they'd all been bulldozed back into the ground. Mm. So the, the animosity is still absolutely current and the desire to be recognised as a people is absolutely current. And I think the only way that you um, have that conversation on an informed and compassionate basis is to go all the way back into the history and look at the start and start again with why did it, why did it build up this way? Mm. Yeah. Um, now we're going to I'm, listen to Jock read oh, for okay. us. This is um, one of my favourite parts because it's so creepy. <laughs> um, I hope it was intended to be. <laughs> yeah, it is intended to be. It's great. Let me just check it's the right one. Yep. Okay. This is fun because I don't know what this is yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's my favourite part. What I could see as the last breaths of fog drew away was a nest of small huts joined to each other to form a continuous roof. The timbers were of various kinds, 
bows that appeared silver from immersion, planks and boards that were milled, some curved to betray their origins as the bones of ships. Iron bolts rusted in the air where the builders had neglected to pull them free. The structures huddled in a saw-cut ridge running horizontally across the cliffs. Shrubs grown up over their low sides showed that these people had been here a very long time. But none of these things were my concern. What concerned me was the men. They had pressed forward at sea level, six of them that I could see, but I felt certain there were others hiding among the shrubs and wreckage and boulders. Two men advanced in the water to ankle depth. A dull sound emanated, gathered mutters that blurred into one constant low and malignant stirring. They were armed. Some carried clubs fashioned from scraps. One or two bore a hook or a crude blade of scrap iron. There were short swords that looked to be of naval issue. One of the men at water level had a rifle and now I saw that another was braced higher, supported by a boulder, with a carbine levelled at the moonbird. We had sailed deep enough into the small bay that they were able to cover us from three sides. Nothing about their faces or any of the sounds from the island gave a clue as to their intentions. They just watched us. The mist had lifted completely now. They must have piled their muck at the margins of their high platform because clouds of gulls rose there and the slightest breeze brought a terrible stench down the cliff. I began to study their faces, their leers and scowls. Once, twice, severally, I saw that the faces were scarred and misshapen, erupting in sores. Some were swollen around the eyes or growths from within had devoured the nose. Missing ears, toothless mouths, lopsided clumps of missing hair. Some contagion had taken hold of them. The horror of it now swept through us all. The master had brought a carbine up from below decks. He worked with practised fingers to tear open the cartridge and pour powder in the pan. The doctor stood close to the bulwark and braced his leg against it. His left hand held his notebook, his right hand a pencil, and he was sketching, or perhaps writing descriptions of what we beheld. The master was working the ramrod, ramrod into the muzzle. The moonbird was only a chain's length from the shore these men stood upon. Mm. What did you read something that was <laughs> terrifying like that? Um, that they came if, so if I think, close. Sometimes these things, you know, it's like late at night. <laughs> things get I mean, weird. Did you say though that was there was there an island somewhere where they some yes sailors had been? Yeah, that um, was. Um, I think Abel Tasman came across. And then they'd sort of, yeah, they'd ugh. been left. Yeah. Came across seven escaped convicts who'd been on one of these islands for years and had uh. just been forgotten, and they'd, they'd gone a bit feral. Um, <laughs> I think I was thinking of Mad Max to some extent. <laughs> nice. Um, and also a book that I was reading uh, at the time called Shepherd by Catherine Jinks. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. And yeah, she yeah, was yeah. really so, good yeah. with old firearms and how right. they were loaded and unloaded, and um, that was very helpful to me. Yeah, yeah. apparently that's quite, a, that's quite a brutal book too. Really brutal, yes. um, really I've well written. I've got it at home. I haven't read it yet. It's great. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's funny, isn't it? And, and you'd go through the same thing, that these scenes, in fact, come from all sorts of unrelated oh, yeah, of sources and yes. influences and yes. things yeah. that are actually quite modern, like Mad Max. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah well, exactly, because sometimes you want to show things haven't changed much. Um, tell us about your research, Jock. Well, um... Or how long do you research before yeah. you start writing do you, or do you do it at the same time? Yeah, I, I, I think of a novel as sort of having three phases, that there's a phase of researching and dreaming. Yep. Um, which for me is very long. Yes. And then there's a phase of telling the story, which is very short. Uh -huh. like the, the, the entire story might be written in seven or eight weeks. Right. And then there's another long phase, which is just going over and over and right. over, making sure that everything's absolutely watertight. Mm -hmm. um, and the researching... I, I have a bad habit of getting distracted and wandering off down rabbit holes, but I think it's really important to the process because... Um, Absolutely. Yeah, you find things. And yep. you go in looking for one thing. And, and the example to me is I, I was thinking about some kind of pathology. It, it may have been leprosy or something. Um, and I came across this thing called St Anthony's Fire, which was a, um, a fungal blight of rye seeds, mm. which would produce symptoms varying from gangrene to mm. psychosis and, and everything mm. in between. So I, I didn't go looking for that, but mm. having stumbled across it, yes. it starts Perfect. driving the story. Yes. Yes. So often, you, you, yeah, you're looking for something that's going to support the story, but it actually takes over. And, and yeah, I love yeah. that kind of uncertainty as yeah. to where it's all going to come from. Awesome. Did you mm. find anything that you found surprising? Was there something that you were 
out of all your research that was just so surprising? Oh, I, I think, um, yeah, what, what surprised me the most was that I had gone looking for anarchists among the sealers, as I was saying earlier, and, and the level of order and domesticity and, and the desire for stability that mm, these people mm, had mm, in the mm. islands. Um, and, and the extraordinary resilience of the, the Tyrelaw women that yeah. um, I think I fall on the side of saying that they had some significant agency in what they were doing, that mm. they had worked out that Tasmania was done with for mm, them mm, mm, mm. and that this was a way forward and that they mm. were going to make it work mm. and that they were going to build a community around it. Mm. Um, and, and, and Taranora is probably the most surprising of all of them. Mm. So Taranora is a real historical figure who I wrote into the novel um, for no other reason than I couldn't believe that she existed and we don't talk about her. Um, she was a Tasmanian woman who uh, was abducted by settlers very early in her life and was used as domestic help um, by settlers, including John Batman, who is um, half of Melbourne's named after Batman, and he mm. was a genuinely terrible man, um, and we shouldn't name anything mm. after him. So she had she had lived with Batman's family, she had lived with other white men, and she'd been taught all sorts of skills as a domestic assistant, including how to use firearms. So one day she escaped and took all of the firearms out into the bush, gave them to men and taught them how to operate the firearms. And what resulted was a kind of guerrilla war mm. in Tasmania led by a woman mm. um, who these people were turning the English guns back on the English. And um, that's a pretty important and rare moment in Australian history. And Absolutely. The, the settlers being shot at. Yes. Um, and she was then taken into the islands and the... the context in which I've placed her in the novel is that she's on the run between yes, islands. Yes. That actually happened and um, the next year she was dead. Mm. So she, I think she lived to 30. Right. Um, the settlers were terrified of her and they hated her. Um, Batman hated her and had chased her all over the place trying to kill her. George Augustus Robinson, who was very measured and compassionate about Aboriginal people yeah. most of the time, yeah. I think equally wanted her dead. He yeah, wanted yeah, the yeah. problem gone. Right. Um, so she's a really significant agitator, you yeah. know, and that was a big surprise. Anything that you assumed wrong? Uh, probably a lot of it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I got a lot of the nautical... Besides the shift. <laughs> yes, <laughs> thank you. Um, I got a lot of the nautical stuff wrong and I, I just the marvellous serendipity of writing novels. I was contacted by a bloke in Tasmania who um, writes for shipping magazines. Right. And he was asking me something else entirely. I forget what it okay. was, but he wanted to know about something. And I said, oh, by the way, would you consider reading a novel manuscript? Because it's full of boats and I'm not sure what I'm doing. Right. And he went through, I thought he would just, you know, offer the odd, yes, no, that's nonsense. Uh. He went through the entire thing, page by page. And in the end, he was correcting my grammar and I got a bit grumpy. <laughs> but um, every single <laughs> nautical reference had been corrected with suggested alternatives. Right. And, and to my great delight, he liked the idea of the Danish schooner, so I didn't oh, have to go back lovely. to first principles there, but, you know, he redesigned the that's boat. That's wonderful. Yeah. That's really wonderful. That you, that Tedious, you, but wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> and these people are out there and, and they yeah. love doing these things, yeah, which I just yeah, think yeah, is, yeah. is marvellous. Yeah. Um, we're nearly up to time for questions from the audience. Um, and I have so many more questions. <laughs> I didn't get through all of them last time. Last time. Um, let me see. Let me see one of my favourite. I've got lots of writer questions for any aspiring writers, but we, we'll get back to them if, if we haven't got audience questions. I listened to you. I think it was you and you've talked about it and Kate Mildenhall's talked about it, and I find it really interesting, this teetering between authenticity versus accuracy. Mm. So I've written here, like it's like a scale, like TV shows or some books, readers just need it to feel accurate. Yes. versus writers who are very strict regarding accuracy. Where do you sit on this? Like, what are your parameters? I operate by a thing that I call the 2% rule, which is that if you write anything about a specialist topic, 2% of the people reading it are going to be experts on that thing. Right. And, and you're going to be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and um, this, I, I know this because my debut novel had a shooting in it Right. And it was a particular type of gun. And I'm still dirty about this because I got this directly off trial transcript. But um, right. a, a relative of ours said that gun would never produce that wound. Um, and um, Did you change that, it? 
No, well, it was already published in no, the Dispatch. No, but in the, nah. in the other reprints, no. <laughs> because I think that if you spend your time as a writer chasing the 2%, yes. yeah. two things happen, you'll go insane, but the other thing that'll happen is you start writing really defensively and you start True. writing in anticipation of that criticism. And what I think you have to do is write to the 98% right. and be plausible. Yeah. Um, so I'm not... And indeed, sometimes an insistence on absolute accuracy mm. is just going to make for clunky storytelling. Oh, absolutely. You can't yeah. put it all in, no. Yeah, so I, I think you aim for something that's plausible and we've all got, you know, everyone's an intelligent reader and, and we have a good radar for stuff that just doesn't... Absolutely. ..doesn't sniff right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And provided that you, you're operating by that principle and not constantly chasing the 2%, yeah. it's going to work as a story. And also sometimes you write something and you're just assuming it's right until somebody tells you it's wrong because, I mean, what's in your head is what's in your head if you think yes. that's, so yes. that's in the 2%. And I remember writing um, Backyard Cricket that there's a mm. scene early in that book where the kids are in the backyard and I, I just spend four or five pages describing the backyard and what all of the imaginary fielding positions are mm. because... Anyone who's played cricket in their backyard knows that certain objects are fieldsmen and if you hit them on the full, you're out. And so I, I, I set up this whole world. <laughs> yes, and it's a great world. my editor is Mandy Brett, who lives in Northcote and as far as I know has absolutely zero interest in cricket mm. um, or in sport, as far as I know. <laughs> and when the, when the line edits came back, included amongst them was a diagram that she'd drawn of my imaginary backyard and all of the fielding positions. Wow. And she said, he's a left-hander. These are all backwards. And she rewrote the fielding positions. Wow. And, and she's a great editor. She's an incredible yeah. editor. And, and I still don't think that was out of an interest in cricket. That was out of an interest <laughs> in accuracy. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. She's something That's else. That's brilliant. Yeah. That's brilliant. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Cheers. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. For more conversations, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Byron Writers Festival is held on the land of the Arakwal Bumbabin people of the Byron Shire. We pay respect to the traditional owners of this land and acknowledge them as the original storytellers of this region.